Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Today we're going to be talking about tax. Uh, about tax. Anyone here work for the Inland Revenue before I sort of jump into a few things? Good. Okay, I can speak a bit more unfiltered then. Um, so we're talking a bit, a bit about tax. Now, um, if you've ever had to, to do self-assessment where you file your own taxes, um, you'll know that there's a weird question that always makes me laugh on the self-assessment form. And it's this. One of the questions is, are you involved in a tax avoidance scheme? I always find that hilarious. I'm like, if you're involved in a tax avoidance scheme, you're probably not going to declare it on your taxes. It's a bit like if you've ever travelled to the States. I'm half American and um, my family's from North Carolina. Whenever I travel over to the States to see my family, I have to fill out this little immigration card and stuff. And there's a question on there which says, are you involved in any terrorist organisations? Now, again, I'm like, whose idea was it to put it on this form? Like, you know, you can just depict the two guys from Al-Qaeda like, oh, no, like... Like, our plan has been foiled. We have to tick that box. I always find that hilarious when I see that anytime I go to the States. I wonder if it stopped any terrorist plots. Who knows? But I want to start off with a, with a, a bit of a story, a bit of a parable. Look, Jesus loved to speak in parables, and this will link eventually to tax and tax collectors. I'll explain that shortly. But I want you just to imagine something. I want you to imagine that it's always been your dream to own and run your own toy shop. Not one of those kind of uh, like franchise chain ones, but one of those really kind of cool, quaint toy shops you might see in some like seaside town on a cobbled street, that kind of thing. And it's always been your dream to have a toy shop since you were a kid. The problem is you're broke. And so you spend uh, all your kind of teenage years saving up your pocket money. And then you do jobs that you hate doing just to get more money and more money. And eventually, after doing all these jobs you hate, you eventually get enough money to own your own toy shop. And so you get your shop, you start building it up and putting all the displays out and the kind of plane that flies around the ceiling and the different window displays. You work really hard to have your toy shop. And the day comes where you can eventually open it up. It's the best day of your life. You get your dream come true to open up your own toy shop. And after a few days of, of, of having your toy shop, you're loving it. People coming in and out and seeing the delight on kids' faces and adults reminiscing about their childhood. After a few days of, of running your toy shop, there's a little on the door, a little knock on the door. And you see someone come in who you recognise, you're like, ah, I remember them from so, somewhere, I can't remember where, but I recognise their face, just they were a bit younger at the time. And this person comes closer to you and, and you say to them, wait, it's, it's Levi, right? I remember you from school. And this guy doesn't seem particularly too happy about seeing you, and he's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's Levi. And he says to you, I don't know if you, you're aware of this, but when you open up a shop in, in this town... There's kind of a system of how things work. There's some, some money you have to, to pay to have the privilege of, of having a shop here. And you're like, wait, I, I, I do things all above board. I pay my taxes. Like, like what are you talking about? He's like, I'm just going to come every, every few weeks and you're just going to have to give me a little bit of money just, you know, to, 
to protect you just for, you know, the opportunity to be here. You're like, no, I'm having nothing to do with that. No, 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 I've worked hard for this. I'm not, I'm not getting involved with that. No, no, no. And then Levi says to you, okay, have it your way. So you go home, go to sleep, you're lying in bed and you think, what was that all about? That's a bit weird. I mean, come on, just switch off to it. It'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then the next morning, you're walking to your toy shop, you're walking to work. When you notice at the end of the street where your toy shop is, just outside your toy shop, there's a crowd of people. And you notice they're outside your shop. And as you get closer, you hear the, the murmuring and the, the, the sort of gasps. And you get closer and you see that your toy shop has been completely smashed up. The window display you spent hours working on completely destroyed. And you go inside and you, you, you look at the floor and there's just bits of broken toys all over the floor, smashed glass and graffiti on the walls. And you spend the rest of your day just kind of cleaning up the mess, trying to repair your broken dreams, sweeping up bits of toys, when all of a sudden there's a little tap on your shoulder. And you look up, and it's Levi. And all he says to you is, next time it won't just be the toys that I break. And so you say to him, look, 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 Please, no, please. And he just walks out and you call the police and you quickly find out that the police want nothing to do with it. In fact, they're in on the gig. And so you realise you have no choice but to start paying this extra money. Money you don't really have, but you have to pay to get your dream off the ground. But then after a few months after paying this and struggling to make ends meet, you hear that there's a guy coming to your town who is famous for going around local towns and sorting out the corruption. And you don't know all the details, but you've heard stories about how this guy speaks truth to power, how he, he, he sorts things out, and, and perhaps he's the saviour. He's going to sort out your area. He's going to sort out your town. You think, surely this guy is going to sort out the corruption where we live. And sure enough, the day comes where Jesus arrives in your town, and there's a crowd behind him, and you, you, you hear them come, and you come out your toy shop, and you see Jesus and this crowd behind him walking towards you. And out of the corner of your eye, you spot someone coming out of the corner shop. And it's Levi. And you see him there counting some freshly collected cash. And then to even greater excitement, you see that Jesus has clocked in too and is now walking towards him. And now you think, here we go. Here we go. This is the moment I've been waiting for. I don't know exactly how Jesus is going to sort Levi out, but surely he's going to do something. He's got a group of guys behind him walking towards him. And so I don't want him to be too badly roughed up, but maybe enough just so that he remembers it. And as you see Jesus get closer and closer to Levi, and Levi notices that Jesus has made a beeline right for him, you listen and you wait to see what's going to happen. And as Jesus approaches Levi, you're amazed at what comes out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus says to him, Levi... I've come here today because I need to speak to you. And what I want to say to you is this. I want to ask if you would join my core team. I want to ask if you'll join my leadership team. And you can't believe what you're hearing. And then he says to him, oh, and and, and Levi, I also wanted to say to you, I don't know if you've got any dinner plans tonight, but I just wanted to see if you'd be up for having dinner together this evening. Now, if you're the toy shop owner in that moment. And you're watching Jesus' interaction with that man, with Levi. 
What are you feeling in that moment? Honestly. I don't want a Christian answer. I mean, honestly. What are you feeling in that moment as Jesus welcomes this man who has caused you such pain into his core team, into his friendship group? Now, you might be like, what on earth has a toy shop got to do with any of this? I thought I was in church and you just got some like, storyteller to turn up, turn up and, and whatever. Well, Jesus loved parables. I love a story. And actually, it's a helpful way of us understanding what Jesus was really like. Because what can happen is you can open your Bible, you can read a few verses in one of the Gospels about Jesus welcoming Levi, a tax collector, and you'd be like... That's cool. Maybe Jesus wanted someone to help balance the books or something like that. You know, he had Peter as the fisherman and he wanted the guy who was a bit more nerdy to, you know, do the accounts. And you can forget that actually this was scandalous what Jesus did. And sometimes just putting it into a modern day context can help us realise just how controversial Jesus' actions were. So we're just going to read this encounter. It's only a couple verses, but it's scandalous what Jesus did. And we're reading from Mark 2, verses 13 to 17. Mark chapter 2, one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, verses 13 to 17. Actually, I think we'll read verses 14 and 15. Let's read those. It says, And as he, that's Jesus, passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Now what did that look like, a tax collector being invited into Jesus' family? Well, a lot like that toy shop story. See, people hated tax collectors, not just because no one really enjoys paying tax. And I doubt there's anyone here who's like, I love when I see my paycheck come in and see that bit going to the tax. I'm like, thank you, God. Like, take more, take more, please. No, we hate it. We hate paying tax, but that's not why people hate paying tax collectors. No, tax collectors were traitors and thieves. During that time, during this historical context, the Romans had taken over Israel and were the conquering power in which tax collectors would raise taxes for. And so if you were a tax collector, you are a traitor to your people. You conspired with the invading army. It's a bit like, you know, if the Nazis had won Second World War, they took over Britain, and then your neighbour was like, oh, cool, like, yeah, I'll raise a bit of money for the Nazis. Like, you're not going to be a big fan of them. And that is what tax collectors were like in the day. They were corrupt. They wouldn't just take money for the Romans, the people you hated, but they would take a little bit on the side for themselves. They were wealthy and corrupt, and they were hated. And if you've grown up in Britain, if you've been around this context, we don't really know a whole lot about corruption. If you've grown up in other cultures, or if you know much about history, corruption has been very normal in human existence. There isn't really a sort of role in the UK that is maybe seen in the same way that tax collectors were. Like, perhaps, you know, we get annoyed at traffic wardens, the people who give out tickets. But at the end of the day, they're just doing their jobs. The equivalent would be if the traffic warden came onto your drive and gave you a ticket for parking outside your house. And you'd be like, what What are you doing? This is ridiculous. Like, well, you don't have a choice. And actually, I'm going to double it so I can get a bit extra for myself. This is what tax collectors were like at the time. And yet, these were the very people that Jesus chose to hang out with. 
And not just one, it wasn't like he didn't realize this guy was a tax collector. No, Jesus made a habit of it. He hung out with tax collectors, so much so him hanging out with people like tax collectors and prostitutes and people who were despised that in Matthew 11, interestingly, the book written by Levi himself, Levi also known as Matthew, Jesus is described as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, that wasn't a compliment or like a, yeah, Jesus is a bit of a party boy. No, no, that was an insult. If you were a religious leader at the time, you stayed away from anyone who would make you unclean, who would make you be seen. It's a bit like, I mean, we can relate to a bit now. You see what it's like online. If you associate with people who have been seen as uh, unacceptable or have been cancelled culturally, even association with them makes you look bad. So as a religious leader, to be called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, was a huge insult, and yet one that Jesus didn't seem too bothered about receiving. So what does that teach us? What does that tell us? Well, the first thing it tells us is this. Jesus' arms are open to everyone. Jesus invites everyone in to be one of his followers. And it's important to say that because I think one of the most tragic things that has ever happened since Jesus was on earth as the church has grown is that we can have an understanding that only certain people are welcomed in his family, in his church. One of the things that breaks my heart is the amount of times I invite people to church and they say, hey, I'd love to come, but if you knew me, you'd know that if I stepped foot into your church, I'd burst into flames. I've heard that phrase so many times I've lost count. And it's tragic to me because when did the church come from a place where Jesus was the one who was with those kind of people to now the place that apparently you can't go if you are a tax collector or the like? The truth is everyone is welcome in his family. If it's your first time in church today or you're new to Christianity or you're exploring, the message of Jesus is that you are welcome. It's not that you need to kind of uh, sort out everything in your life because before you come here, no, Jesus welcomes you as you're on that journey, as you're working things out. You are welcome in Jesus' family. Jesus' interactions with tax collectors not only teach us who is invited, but how we are to invite people in too. We're going to read about another interaction he had with a tax collector in Luke 19, 1 to 7. And this is a story, if you grew up in church or in Sunday school, you might have heard many a time before, but again, it's a story that packs a real punch and would have been very, very controversial at the time. So again, Jesus, he's walking uh, through Jericho, he's with his, his group, with his crowd, and this is what happens. It says, he, Jesus, uh, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So this is like the worst of the worst. Not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
So again, Jesus has an interaction with a tax collector that was despised at the time. Again, we read it. I sang it in Sunday school. We read this. We used to sing a little song about Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee. Anyone sing that? I think that's probably one of those songs that's not okay these days, to be fair. So maybe cut that one out the recording. But we loved it. It was a banger back in the day. Uh, but maybe we can sing that in worship after. Anyway, we'll do it. We'll sing it later. It's great. It's great. But uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's distracting me now, getting flashbacks to, to me as a little kid. But, um, so here we see Jesus, again, interacting with the tax collector and going to his home. And what's helpful that we read in this passage, and you see in this passage, is that Jesus starts with relationship. He starts with relationship. And often when we can think about sharing the good news of Jesus with people, we can have all sorts of perceptions about what that looks like. I'm all the time talking with people about sharing faith and they're like, I just find it way too intimidating. Like, I don't have the confidence. I don't have all the answers. And I'll say to people, do you have a home? And they'll be like, yeah. And I'm like, do you have an ability to hang out with people? And they'll be like, yeah. I was like, well, that that is the, the starting point, the foundation of sharing faith with people. It's just spending life with people, opening your home to people, opening your heart to people. That's what Jesus did. And this might seem like a pretty kind of basic, you're like, wait, you travelled all the way from Sidcup to tell us, like, just have meals with people, and that's really controversial and powerful. Yeah, that is why I travelled four hours on the train. And it was fun, enjoyed it, to be fair. But that is such a massive thing. And actually, increasingly, that isn't a norm in our society. In our small group, so I don't know, I assume you guys here have different kind of groups you meet up during the week. That's what we do in our church. It's amazing. I love it. We meet every Wednesday. But one week a month, what we do is we don't meet because we dedicate it to hanging out with people who don't yet know Jesus. Now, you can do that at other points too, but we all know how easy it is to get busy. So like that week, that's when we hang out with people who are trying to share faith with. So we invite them into our homes and try and, you know, have conversation. Don't force it. It's not like as soon as they come through the door, you have to be like, have you become a Christian yet? It's like, you can be weird. You can be normal. You don't have to be weird. It's fine. But my friends, Ellie and Ethan, they had um, a lady, a colleague over uh, a few weeks ago, a Jamaican lady who's been in the country for years, had him over for dinner. They had all sorts of deep chats. And at the end of the night, this lady said to him, you know what? I've had such a great time. She's like, I've been in this, in this country for years and years and years. And this is the first time I've ever been invited into a British person's house. Amazing. I think this, church, this lady had been in the country like 15 years. Never been into a British person's house. And yet here is just one of their colleagues who's invited him in, cooked him some food, and shared about the highs and lows of life. Shared about the fact that they're Christians. And that might just seem so simple, just putting some food on the hob, opening your front door and welcoming someone in. So, uh, welcoming someone in. And yet that had a profound impact on someone. For the past four or five years, I've been trying to make friends with uh, a sweet lady in the 80s called Lynn. And when I moved to my old street, uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to try and get to know all my neighbours. And uh, me and my two housemates, we we flyered all the neighbours and invited them to a cheese and wine party at a house. And we got the house ready, and we had the scented candles going, and some like soft jazz music, loud but not too loud, and like the lamp. We turned off the top light because you got to have that ambiance, and it was like all ready to go. We we're expecting like we probably invited I don't know maybe thirty houses, maybe roughly I don't know fifty to hundred people. So we're ready to go like small lounge, but we'll work it out. We'll fit them all in somehow. 
And uh, in the end of everyone we invited, how many came? Two people. <laughs> two people. So revival broke out. It was amazing. And uh, yeah, two ladies in their 80s, two widows. And uh, so me and my two housemates were sat there drinking a lot of wine, a lot of cheese with two ladies in their 80s. And uh, we got chatting. It was interesting. This lady, Lynn, I built a bit of a friendship with her. And a few weeks later, I went, just knocked on her door and she was a bit shocked. I was like, can I come in for a cup of tea? She's like, yeah. And um, for the last like five years, we've, we've built up a bit of a friendship. When my wife and I got married a couple of years ago, she came to our wedding. Uh, she was at our Easter service a couple of weeks ago. She's still exploring faith in, on that journey. Uh, but it was really interesting to me how about a year ago we were having tea and she said to me, John, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah, yeah, what's that, Lynn? She's like, why do you hang out with me? <laughs> She's like, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> She's like, you're in your 30s. I'm in my 80s, and I'm boring. Like what, do you, like, what do you get out of it? And I was like, Lynn, I love chatting to you. Like, I love hanging out with you. It's fun. It's great. Like, you're, you're not just something I do because I have to. Like, I don't hang out with you out of a burden. Like, it's just fun. She's like, I've been in this street for 30-odd years. No one's ever hung out with me. And you're this young guy who wants to have tea with me. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And it was amazing. Like, it might just seem like this small, insignificant thing. But having a cup of tea with a lady in her 80s for a couple hours every couple of months, which is what I do, it doesn't have a massive burden in my life. But for her, it's this huge moment. The smile on her face when I knock on her door, it's like amazing. And we talk about life, we talk about divorce and death and how could a loving God allow suffering and all these things. And it all just started by a little invite and a knock on the door and a lot of pretty poorly made cups of tea. <laughs> And a few digestive biscuits on the side. And I just want to ask you the question of, are you opening your house to people? Are you opening your home to people? Are you opening your heart to people? And I know what it's like as a student. I was a student once, studied history back in Nottingham. I know what it's like sometimes, or if you're in a smaller place, shared living, it can be complicated. But there's always coffee shops. I was in the Northern Quarter on Friday and flipping out, you've got enough coffee shops there. Enough hipster coffee shops to last a lifetime. <laughs> Who are you inviting into your life? And I also want to ask you the question is, are you just hanging out with people just like you? See, the tendency for all of us, we're all the same, whether it's age or race or education or class, the tendency is that we can just gravitate to people like us. But the beauty, the power of the people of God, the church of God, is that we're not just some kind of monoculture of people just like us. No, we open our lives to other people. So I just want to encourage you, something maybe to reflect on this week is, who am I spending time with? Who am I investing in? Am I opening my heart and opening my home to people not like me? And often it involves being intentional. I love in the story of Zacchaeus that Jesus is surrounded by all these people and yet he notices this little guy on a tree. Now, to be fair, that would have looked a little bit weird. But still, Jesus could have been with everyone else. He could have been like, oh, yeah, like, that's, no, he's obviously an odd one. I'm going to move on. But no, Jesus not only stopped, he was intentional and said, hey, let's hang out. And I just want to encourage you, maybe challenge you. Are you uh, kind of revolving your life around being intentional? Are you interrupting? Are you so busy that if you were to see the person in the tree, you're like, I don't have the time to do that? Or is your life and is your heart structured in a way in which if there's someone who's really looking for love, looking for Jesus, that you're able to stop and offer that to them? 
The next thing uh, that I love about that story is how when we share Jesus with people, a big part of what we're doing is trying to restore them to their true identity. Let's look at um, verses 8 to 10, the same story in Luke 19. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, there's a part of the, this story in just that verse 9 that I've read this story many times since a kid that I've always missed out on, but really stood out to me rereading it again in recent weeks. It's where Jesus says of Zacchaeus, he is also a son of Abraham. So what Jesus is saying is Zacchaeus, whilst the whole of society might have said, look, he has rejected us. He has rejected our people. Jesus is saying, no, he is a son of Abraham, which for those who wouldn't understand the culture of this time, basically a son of Abraham is saying he's one of the people of God. Abraham, the father of the faith. And what Jesus is saying is that he is now living in line with his true identity. His actions that we've just read about, giving back fourfold, turning to Jesus, reveal that he is also a son of Abraham. Now, we don't know why Zacchaeus started to live in a way that was against his identity as one of the people of God. So the people of God were never meant to steal or be corrupt or fraud people as Zacchaeus had done. And he started living in a way that was not in line with his identity. And there's all sorts of reasons why we do that, why we live in such ways. Perhaps it's certain things about our lives, even our bodies. Perhaps it was Zacchaeus, something to do with his height. I always find it interesting, why did that have to be pointed out so much in this story? But perhaps there's something in our lives that makes us live in ways which aren't in line with God's plan. Perhaps something to do with our childhood, something to do with our upbringing, the way our cards have been dealt to us. That means we don't live in a way which is true to the identity which God has called us to. And identity is a massive, massive thing in our culture. That question of who am I? Who am I? Probably the most powerful and contentious question of our day. I walked around the streets here over the weekend. Everyone is desperately asking, who am I? I walked around Aflex. It was a cultural experience. It was a spiritual experience. Every stall, every person in that shop trying to ask that question, who am I? Powerful, powerful thing. People desperately looking inside to find that answer. And yet Jesus is the one who comes. He says, look, I have made you, I know you, and I want to restore you to your true identity. That is what Jesus has come to do. He came to do it for Zacchaeus 2,000 years ago, and he still comes to do it for you and I, and your neighbours, and course mates, and colleagues today. And I'm not just talking about the obvious cultural issues that get debated on Twitter and social media every day. I'm also talking about some of those other areas we can find and look for identity, and yet often it leads us down to dark or unhelpful or unfulfilled paths. I'm talking about things like my identity is found in being in a relationship. Like if, I, if I'm not in a relationship, I feel less than. But the problem is if we find our identity in that place, then it is always going to be shaking sands because 
it might fall through the relationship. Or you get married and you're like, wow, I thought this was going to make me never feel insecure again, never feel lonely again. And you know what? You get married, you get into this relationship, whatever it is, and you're like, wow, this hasn't fully fulfilled me. I haven't fully found that identity I was looking for. And maybe you have kids and then, oh, then life will be fine. I'll have that identity. And yet it still isn't found because that is an unstable foundation for an identity. But the truth that Jesus has come to restore to you is that you are part of the family of God, the eternal family. You are part of the bride of Christ. You are cherished and loved. He has created you and formed you for relationship with his family and with him forever. And that is something that can never be taken away, that can never be robbed from you, and is an identity that you can build your life on. Perhaps for you, it's an identity based on having a respectable job or success. I know there's going to be a lot of clever and hardworking people in an area like this. I know there's going to be a lot of people who there's a lot of pressure put on you by families and by even your own expectations of what you need to achieve. But the problem is, if your job or perhaps having a certain amount of finance is going to give you your identity then you're always going to be struggling. Let me just tell you that for sure. So I'm now in my mid-30s. I graduated 15 years ago. I have friends who are earning way better money than me, who have really respectable jobs, and are really just struggling with life because they're comparing to just what would be better. I'm like, your life is awesome. They're like, yeah, yeah, but that person has that house, or that person has that respectable thing, or that person's younger than me, and they're my boss. If you base your identity in your success, in your achievements, in your finance, and how nice your house is, or whatever it is, you are on shaky sands. It will never be enough, I promise you that. But if you base your life on God's identity, on his affirmation, that you don't have to impress him, that you don't have to work hard enough to be good enough for him, that you don't have to earn his love or approval, that he is a father who is never going to be disappointed in you because he loves you, then you are going to have an identity that lasts. Jesus came to restore our identity. And it's also important to say that a new identity also leads to a new life. And again, as Christians, I think one thing that we can sometimes do is we like to talk about um, the love of Jesus, but we often don't always like talking about the life of Jesus. We often don't like talking about the difference that he makes to how we live. And I love how um, in this story we see that when Zacchaeus experiences Jesus, it leads to a changed life. We read it in, let's read that verse again in Luke 19.8. It says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and I have defrauded anyone, if, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. See, I don't think we necessarily like that bit. We'd kind of, I mean, we like it if it's like, oh, sweet, I'm getting my payment back from the tax collector. We love that. But when it comes to us having to sacrifice certain things and give up certain things for God, that's something we can sometimes overlook. And when we share about the gospel of Jesus, we never start with, you need to sort your life out, you need to do this. No, it comes from encounter first. Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and then it led to a changed life. But encountering Jesus doesn't just stop there. That's not the end of the story. It leads us to finding fresh freedom in him. And it looks like our life being different than the way in which we use our bodies, 
the way in which we view money, the way in which we view sex, the way in which we view success, all of those things change through an encounter with Jesus. And the truth is, when we talk about those things with people, it doesn't mean that they will always respond well, as we know. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong. Even in Jesus' ministry, there's a fascinating story where this rich young ruler, perhaps he was like you know, a, a young adult in Manchester earning some good money, he comes up to Jesus and says, look, I've, I've been living for you. I, I follow your ways. I do all of your things. Is that enough? Is that enough to be part of the kingdom of God? And Jesus says this, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The young man, disheartened by the saying, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, the truth is Jesus calls us not to just a belief system, but a way of life. And not just because he's a killjoy. Jesus isn't some kind of killjoy in the sky. Like, what, the, what do those guys down on earth like? Okay, sex, well, we'll tell them none of that. Money, none of that. Like, Jesus isn't the person who's come to make your life worse and as worse as possible. No, we read in the Bible that Jesus came that we might have life and life to the full. And part of encountering Jesus is encountering his ways, which are for our good. And often they clash with what our culture says are for your good. And the ways of Jesus can often look like sacrifice for something better. This young man who says, I'm all in. Jesus says, cool, well, if if you're really all in, I I know that money for you is the thing that holds you back. You're really tight-fisted with it. So when you give that up, you'll have complete freedom. And even Jesus didn't have a 100% success rate. And it might be that if you're sharing faith with people and you're presenting the good news You can think that if someone walks away, oh, maybe I haven't shared it properly. But sometimes when we present the amazing gospel of Jesus, people will say, you know what, actually that's too big a sacrifice. I was chatting to a a mate of mine a few years ago about this, and and he'd actually grown up in a a, a church family and that sort of thing, and then walked away from faith. I was like, mate, like, why? Like, come on, like, this is, this is, you're you're giving up so much, this is amazing. Like, why, why are you walking away from Jesus? And he's like, I still believe that there's a God. I still believe it all. But, and this is his exact phrase. He said, I just like sex too much. I just like sex too much. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I just can't. Jesus' rules about marriage and the only being for that, he's like, I just want to have sex with lots of people. And I know I can't do that as a Christian. And on one hand, I massively respected him for being honest. Most people, when they walk away from church or reject Christianity, they'll just make up some pretend answer that hides the root of why they don't believe in it. And fair fair play to my mate, he was very honest about it. And the truth is, for some people, when they count the cost, they'll see it as not worth it. Now, what I know now, as I mean, I was only in my early 20s at the time, but what I know now, having been in people's lives and just studied these things, I wish I could have said to him that statistically, as a Christian, you're probably going to have more sex and more fulfilled sex because that's what all the stats say. People who sleep around loads and who aren't in committed relationships, on average, have less sex and less enjoyable sex. And Christians, this is, you know, you can take this home with you today if you want, on average, have more and more fulfilled sex. As a 20-year-old, I wasn't so (laughs) aware of all that stuff, but 
Again, the reason I share that isn't just because I wanted to chuck out a stat, it's because Jesus came that we'd have life to the full. He's not a killjoy that's just like, to my mate, I want your life to be boring. No, he's like, I want your life to be better. I want your life to be good. And that's what Jesus offers. Any sacrifice for Jesus is worth it. I can say that in my own life. As someone who was single till my mid-30s, Jesus was worth every day. I don't regret any of that. As someone who has sacrificed large parts of money, like seeing about your big give, I'm like, this is awesome. I hope these guys go for it. Like seeing how my money has been used for other people's good and not my own is awesome. I don't regret that. Yes, I could have maybe had a nicer holiday in the Maldives at some point. But I've got to see people in other countries be able to eat when I could have always just, you know, had a nice little holiday in Butlins or something like that. So they don't die. Like, it's a good trade-off. Or seeing people who never have heard about Jesus, hear about Jesus. I love hearing Tim talk about Russian-speaking people. I love that. In the midst of all this crazy global stuff, there's Russian-speaking people are preaching the gospel of Jesus. And we can be a part of that. I can't stop the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but I can help fund something that's going to help people hear about the love of Jesus. How awesome is that? I love that. Any sacrifice you give up for Jesus will be worth it. I tell you that, I have zero regrets, zero regrets. Everything I've given up for him, he is so much better. And I just want to encourage you, maybe you're someone who's kind of new to church and looking in. I want to just say to you again, Jesus' arms are open to you. You don't have to sort out all your mess before you can be welcomed into his family. But then I promise you this, as you walk with Jesus, life with Jesus is so much better. So much better. His ways really do give you life and life to the full. And I just want to encourage you, for for those who've been in church maybe for a long time, and you've heard all this stuff before. Maybe you sang the Zacchaeus song as a kid. You know all this stuff. But the truth is, we can slip from our identity in Jesus. There's a, a book at the end of the Bible, Revelation, where Jesus writes to different churches these different churches and to one church he says you have forgotten your first love and it's a reminder to us as those who walk with Jesus that just because you have known him you've known your identity in him it doesn't mean that you'll always be grounded and rooted in that and I would just encourage you just to maybe again this week to take a step back and to look at your life and be like are there certain areas in my life where I've sort of drifted from my identity in him I found myself just getting a bit too caught up in in my appearance at work or in in trying to pursue this thing or that thing. And I've lost a bit of my identity in Jesus. And the great thing about God is when we pray, when we open our hearts up to him, I know in my own life he's often revealed things to me that I didn't even see were there. And perhaps this week you want to pray, God, if there's any way in which my identity is not in line with what you call it, show that to me and change it. I don't know where you're at. I don't know uh, the different things in your lives. I don't know the secrets you've never told everyone, the fears that you would never share. But God does know them, and he sees them. And just like with Zacchaeus, who from the outside looked like he had this perfect life, this wealthy guy on the inside was wrestling with questions and with guilt, he comes to Jesus, and Jesus turns his life around, and he goes away free. And Jesus wants to do that in your life too. Whether it's something massive he wants to free you from or just a little thing that's having an impact on your life, he cares and he sees you. And in a room like this, you might be like, well, okay, where is God in all of this? 
But he sees you, he knows you. Just as he saw Zacchaeus on that tree, he sees you this morning. And as you open your heart up to him, he'll come in, he'll bring you that freedom and restore you to the identity that he has for you.